Hello, everybody. Welcome to Dan Snow's History Hit. I've got Owen Matthews on the podcast today. A brilliant journalist and historian. He spent a little time in the, the Balkans in the 90s, and he's subsequently written lots of books about Russian history. This, in its way, is also a book about Russian history, an impeccable spy, the story of Richard Sorge, who was Stalin's master agent. Now, this is an astonishing story of espionage. If you haven't heard of it, you're not going to believe your eardrums, but I'm sure most of you know the story. He was called by Ian Fleming the most formidable spy in history, and it's the story of Richard Sorge, a man with a German father and a Russian mother who played an absolutely, well, listen to the man and see what you think, but I, I think a possibly decisive role in the Second World War. Truly, truly remarkable. The book has been extremely well reviewed. This is a masterpiece, so enjoy. Uh, thanks, everyone, for your feedback on the Stephen Fry podcast earlier this week. It was a great pleasure to meet Stephen Fry. I've never met him before. He is as charming, as keen to please, as generous in real life as he appears on all his uh, on all his television shows and his, his broadcasting forays. Uh, a true national treasure. It's great to have on the podcast. You can see the interview. We filmed the interview that I recorded with Stephen Fry, just like we filmed many of the interviews. We've got one with Lucy Worsley coming up. They all go on History Hit TV. You may have heard me mention it before. History Hit TV is like Netflix for history. It's like a place where great lovers of history can go and get the content they need, which are not being provided by the traditional broadcasters. You get a History Hit TV. When you make an account, you enter the code POD3, P-O-D-3, and you get three months for just one pound, euro, or dollar for each of those three months. I mean, that's madness. So basically, you get the world's best history channel for just one pound, dollar, or euro a month for the first three months. Please join us on this adventure. It's really, really fun. The more of you join, the better the channel's going to get. It's very, very exciting times. Anyway, here's Owen Matthews talking about Stalin's master agent. Enjoy. I feel the hand of history upon our shoulders. All this tradition of ours, our school history, our songs, this part of the history of our country, all were gone and finished and liquidated. One child, one teacher, one book and one pen can change the world. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. It's great to be here. Is this the ultimate... If you were asked, if an alien came to Earth and they said, show me an example of one man, of a spy, changing the course of world history, would this be the example that we give that alien? <laughs> Actually, probably yes, because the uh, Richard Zorge was sort of the classic model of a James Bond spy, swashbuckling, womanizing, professional deceiver, extremely good at charming men, women, stealing secrets, all that stuff. But actually, when it comes to the impact of most spies that you can think of, you know, Oleg Gordievsky, you know, Kim Philby, the Cambridge Five, not many of them really have an impact on world history. I mean, you could say that the atomic spies in the 40s, that really did change world history. They gave the Soviets the bomb. But Zorge is actually really in a very narrow category because instead of just being concerned with the business of other spies, you know, betraying other spies, that kind of thing. Actually, his information that he provided to the Soviets really did change the course of history. Famously, what the, if anyone knows anything about Zorge, the one thing everyone knows is that he successfully, that he warned Stalin several weeks and months in advance that the Germans were going to invade in July 
1941, and he was famously ignored by Stalin. But where Zorge was not ignored and where he really changed the course of history was that after the German invasion, um, he was able to tell Stalin that the Japanese would definitely not invade the Soviet Union in 19, the summer of 1941. And that information was enormously turned out to be epochally important because Stalin, knowing that his far eastern flank was safe, was able to transfer five army corps to the defense of Moscow. And now, with hindsight, what we realize is, in fact, it wasn't really Stalingrad or Tobruk or you know, whatever. The, the, the turning point of the, of, the, the, of, of the Second World War was, was failing to take Moscow. And that information that allowed Stalin to successfully defend Moscow was, came from, that, from, from, our, from our man, Richard Zorge. Operation spying. Typhoon. And they were used specifically, weren't they, by Zhukov as, as counterattacking troops, weren't they? Those ones from the east that were able then to pile into the German forces outside Moscow? Well, there's actually a, a strange personal story, actually, because my wife is Russian, and her grandmother uh, was at her family's dacha, her father's dacha, just to the west of Moscow in 1941, in October 1941. And she was told to pack up, and she, her, father, her, her, her own father was an artist. They took down all the pictures from the walls, took them off their stretchers, wrapped them up, put them in a trunk, buried them in the garden in expectation of the Germans advancing. And the Germans were already in the next door village. And that night, which my wife's grandmother was thought would be the last she'd ever spend in this dacha, she's woken up by a rumbling noise coming from the road. And she gets a lantern, goes down to the roadside, and she sees hundreds of troops, fresh troops who have just walked from the railhead, sleeping in the snowy roadsides. And the, and the rumbling is their snoring. And she asks the officer, like, who are these guys? Then she says, Sibiriki, they're the Siberians. They're the troops that came from Siberia to defend Moscow. And they died in their hundreds and, uh, in the marsh, which is, uh, divides Nikolinagara from the next door village. And I wrote that book partly in that dacha. Natalia Alexeyevna was still alive then to tell the story. So, you know, literally, you know, the Siberians were defended that exact part of Moscow where uh, my my uh, my wife grew up. And that's one of the what-ifs in history. If Hitler's Japanese allies invaded Siberia from their empire in northern China, the world might be a very different place today. Now, so let's talk about Sorge. Where's he from? Who's he working for? What, how'd he end up in Tokyo sharing the highest secrets of the imperial Japanese state? He's uh, a German communist, uh, but um, interestingly, like many spies, a sort of rootless German. Uh, because as Kim Philby, who in many, many ways is his sort of psychic twin, said, in order to betray, you have to belong, and I never belonged. So Zorge is an interesting case because he's born in 1895 to a German father, Russian mother, in Baku, now the capital of Azerbaijan, then the part of the Russian Empire. The oil boom city, his father was an oil engineer. He moves as a child back to Berlin and grows up in Germany in the family of a very sort of strict um, nationalist father. But that expatriate background and his, the fact that his mother was Russian sowed a lifetime's otherness in him, I think. And uh, he was, uh, as a young patriotic German in 1914, uh, he, like you know, hundreds of thousands of others, joined up, experienced the horrors of the trenches. And just like his near contemporary Adolf Hitler, you see that bitter disillusionment. He was wounded three times. He, he had the Iron Cross, got the Iron Cross for, for gallantry. And Zorge 
came out of the war, as did so many people of his class and generation, you know, angry and convinced that the world had to change, that the old world was rotten and had betrayed a whole generation in what the Germans call the Kinder War, the slaughter of the innocents. So he becomes a passionate communist, is very involved in the revolutionary movements in the 19, uh, 1920s, or the, from 1918 to 1923. Germany actually has six different revolutions, none of which are successful, has much, many more revolutions than Russia did, but the, the Russian ones succeeded, the German ones did not. Very quickly gets uh, drawn into the orbit of Moscow, of the Communist International, he gets recruited as a spy, and very quickly demonstrates uh, his uh, an affinity for for the craft. And in the nineteen twenty late nineteen twenties, he is posted first to Shanghai, and then to Tokyo, which is actually a much more challenging environment for the Soviet uh, for, for the Soviet intelligence. And he in Tokyo hides in plain sight as literally Richard Zorge, journalist, which is what he is. And he uh, goes on to form one of the most successful spy rings in, in, in history. Does he, he, he learn to speak Japanese? I mean, how does he manage to integrate himself in with, with Japanese society? Well, interestingly, one of the things about Zorge is that in, in many ways he's a, he's a brilliant spy, but he, um, one thing that John the Carey wrote about him was that he used espionage as a string to tie together a, a bundle of mid-range talents. <laughs> So actually, I think he was Dr. Richard Zorge, as he always insisted on being addressed, was in fact not quite as brilliant and academically talented as 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 he thought, and neither was he actually very good at speaking Japanese. But what he was brilliant at, and his personal contribution, was charming Germans, particularly German officers. And throughout his career in Shanghai and spectacularly in Tokyo, he makes friends with German officers, particularly a man called Eugen Ott, who uh, is posted as a military attaché, then becomes German ambassador, who becomes Richard Zorge's closest friend. Um, Zorge becomes his unofficial advisor in the embassy. And through Ott, he's given official access to all of the confidential embassy traffic from Berlin to their representative in Tokyo. And Germany and Japan, of course, being two key members of the Axis, that's a very important position to be in when you're monitoring that, uh, those communications. Uh, on the Japanese side, his main contact, with whom, by the way, he spoke in English, not in Japanese, was a communist uh, journalist called Hotsumi Ozaki, who very quickly became prominent in various think tanks and joined from 1936 onwards, a thing called the Breakfast Group, which is literally a group that met for breakfast with the prime minister. So he was the, in the inner circle of advisors to the Japanese prime minister. So at the height of his espionage, Zorge was one degree of separation from Hitler, because his best chum and closest informant, Eugen Ott, would see Hitler regularly and communicate personally to Hitler in, in Berlin. He was one degree of separation from the Japanese prime minister, because his best agent had breakfast with him every morning, literally. And he was one degree of separation from Stalin, because his bosses in Moscow would see Stalin on a daily basis. And his cover was, he was a journalist. His cover was also the truth, in fact, because I, I, the, the Fourth Department, which later became the Russian military intelligence, but they very uh, intelligently, they, they, they very quickly realized that the best way to hide for an illegal agent was actually in plain sight. The, the most secure thing you could do was actually just pretend, would just be yourself, 
but have a second life underneath it. And Zorge was extremely good. He was actually one of nature's, one, one of history's great bluffers. He was able to create a persona for himself, or the, the, uh, a, a reputation for himself as a great Japan kenner, an expert on Japan based on basically nothing when he was preparing in Berlin to go off to, uh, to, to his assignment in Tokyo. And he was able just to trade off uh, one publication against another, started writing for one, started writing for another, and very quickly became established a real reputation in the real world as a real journalist, which was a very neat cover for his parallel life. So one of the major problems strategically for the Axis powers in the Second World War is they, they were terribly bad at coordinating with each other, right? So he is sitting there, presumably watching all of these attempts the Germans are making to get the Japanese to actually work with them. Yeah, it's actually one that one of the most interesting parts of the story is that it's not clear. Certainly, in 1939, it's not clear. Uh, in 1941, it's not even clear which nation is going to be on which side in World War Two. I mean, we, it's easy to forget that from 1939 to 1941, Germany and the Soviet Union were actually allies effectively and the Soviet Union was supplying Nazi Germany with huge amounts of, of, of raw materials and even after the beginning of, of Operation Barbarossa when Hitler invades the Soviet Union it's not clear whose side Japan is going to be on whether they're going to get involved in the war and it becomes one of the most urgent tasks for the German ambassador to get the Japanese involved and they're trying everything in their power to get the Japanese to they even set up a sand table in the basement of the German embassy where they, where they do mock-ups of Vladivostok harbor and plan for the Japanese how to attack Vladivostok and um, but the but the Japanese don't do it they don't do it for a very interesting reason not I think because they didn't want to uh, help their German allies. I think they would have been happy to help their German allies if they could. But actually, the real reason was not political. It was practical. The real reason why the Japanese did not invade the Soviet Union in 1941 was because they did not have enough oil. It was that practical piece of information that they did not have sufficient strategic oil reserves to keep their army in the field in China because they were massively deployed in occupying China or their fleet at sea in Southeast Asia. They didn't have enough oil to make that push north to Siberia, which, as we know now know, was actually rather lightly defended. And that was how Zorge knew that the decision was made by the Japanese on the basis of oil, not on the basis of politics. They couldn't oblige their German allies because they needed to take the oil fields of of of, uh, of Indonesia of, of Batavia and and that strategic imperative saved the Soviet Union essentially in 1941. It's astonishing but Sorge is ignored initially by Stalin Stalin says no you're just he was that frustrating for him he was saying the Germans are going to invade the Soviet Union he was being ignored in Moscow was that what was that process like? Yeah, I think we can we can safely speculate that it was frustrating for him because one of the interesting things about about this book is that um, none of the Western biographies been written have have made any reference to the Soviet archives. There's quite a lot of Russian scholarship on this subject, but no Western researcher has actually looked at the the, the Soviet side of the story. And what you see when you look at the correspondence and the history of the Soviet military intelligence for that period is you realize that basically from 1937 onwards, um, Stalin's paranoia and the purges have totally crippled 
the intelligence apparatus of the Soviet Union. They have brilliant agents in the field. They have Zorgi in the field providing this gold-plated information. But such is the paranoia that from 1938 onwards, they basically don't believe any agent reports at all. And that's a mixture of Stalin's personal paranoia, it's institutional paranoia. But you know, by 1941, why didn't Stalin believe Zorgi? Because he had his own reasons that he was personally convinced that Hitler was not going to betray him in one narrative. Stalin's deputy Molotov said, actually, Stalin always expected an invasion. It was just a matter of when. So that's another narrative. But, there, but, but one thing that we see really clearly from the archives is all the papers that are being put on his desk by his intelligence chief, military intelligence chief, Philip Golikov, are doctored. They're sexed up like the dodgy Iraq dossier to basically conform to what Stalin thinks, that there is not going to be an invasion. So it's a, it's a, it's, it's a deadly example of groupthink, of how deputies... And you can see why General Filip Gorlikov, Stalin, the head of Soviet military intelligence, would want to please his boss because his the six previous heads of military intelligence had themselves all been executed. So I mean, there's a very strong motivation that, to survive. And the way to survive in Stalin's Russia is to tell the boss what he wants to hear. The problem is that it means that you, that, that you ignore not just Zorge's report, but actually, as it turns out, there's actually 19 different agents, including a group of anti-Nazi Germans in Berlin, called, uh, in, in Germany, called the Rote Capella, who are also reporting the same thing, the details of Barbarossa. I mean, the picture is really, really, really clear, you know, from, from, from Zorge's German sources in Berlin, in, in Tokyo, uh, that this is going to happen. And Zorge, by 1941, it's easy to forget. He hasn't actually been in, in Moscow since 1935. It's been six years since he actually saw anybody who he's notionally working for. And most of the people he saw in 1935 are dead. There's nobody that, that remembers him. He's like you know, this voice out in the wilderness running his brilliant spy team. But the people who are receiving, you know, the customers of his intelligence are all different people, people he doesn't know. And people, as we now see from the archives, that basically didn't trust him from 1938 onwards. So, yeah, I think he was very frustrated. Why do they suddenly trust him in late autumn 1941? Well, I think the, the fact that 120 Wehrmacht divisions crossed the border on July 22nd, 1941 was, was a hard-to-ignore piece of evidence. <laughs> so I think he was sort of pretty emphatically proved right about that. And so very quickly they kind of got behind the fact that actually um, this, this guy was providing very important information and became a, a, a matter of extreme urgent national security priorities. You know, can we afford to leave the Soviet Far East undefended or can we withdraw these divisions and fight a war on one front? And we know that Stalin you know, only barely was able to fight a war on one, one front with the Germans. If the Japanese had invaded in 1941 or even 1942, there's no way that Stalin could have survived. Uh, how does Zorge become so confident that the Japanese... Are not, what, what's the sort of critical... Is there a critical moment when he realises they are absolutely not going to invade Siberia? Is there a conversation or...? There is. Uh, there, there's, there's very definitely a moment. And that is the moment when the, all the members of the general staff go for an audience with the emperor, Hirohito which is a very unusual thing for Japanese politics at the time. As it turns out, there's a debate for years inside the Japanese military, a conflict, basically, between the, uh, the Japanese army and the Japanese navy. And the Japanese army is engaged in China. They're the ones that want to invade the USSR. The navy, because 
they need a C, uh, are obviously pushing for Plan South, which is to invade the Philippines, Malaya, uh, the Dutch East Indies, and take Singapore and so on. So, so this sort of strategic back and forth is actually, is actually going on for, for a long time. And it's finally decided, actually, by the oil question. And there's because Zorge is so plugged in to the inner circles of, of, of Japan's leadership. He's able to to learn within 48 hours of that fateful decision and also get his hands on the official forecasts of the of the, the strategic reserves of oil. So he's so the reason why he's confident is because he's you know amazingly well informed at the top levels of the Japanese government. That's gold plated. Now what role so you tell Stalin that Stalin moves the troops west and, and Moscow is saved. Does he go on to have play an important role in the rest of the war? Uh, no, sorry, but there's a bit of a plot spoiler here. But the, the um, no, the, he gets arrested and hanged. So um, he, through no fault of his own, actually. I mean, there's many crazy, reckless things that he did in the course of his career. He used to like getting drunk and driving motorcycles at high speed, often with girlfriends on the back, and then crashing them. Mercifully, not with any. While well, he had any girlfriends on board, but he crashed his his motorcycle quite regularly, quite often with secret papers in his pocket. He used to get drunk among, with, and with audiences of Nazis and stand on tables and say like, "I love Stalin. Hitler is a bandit," and everyone would say like, "Oh, crazy old Richard." Uh, so, so, so the, 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 there are plenty of, of reckless things that he did. Uh, he had an affair with the, the the German ambassador's wife, who was also his best friend and closest informant also not you know classic great tradecraft but he got away with that one too so despite all these sort of rather um, reckless things that he did he didn't get caught because of, of any mistake that he made it was just like a sub agent of a sub agent that had been recruited by somebody uh, who a sort of third hand that gets arrested names a name and the Japanese police roll up his network and it turns out that the Japanese, from the very moment that Zorge Spiring has established its secret illicit transmitter in 1934, the Japanese have immediately intercepted the signal and transcribed it. But it's in letter groups. And this is so Japanese. They, so for the next seven years, they, they intercept basically everything that he's, that he's sent, but it's just gibberish. But they keep transcribing it faithfully. So they have like a gigantic piles of transcribed radiograms in the eventual hope that they'll some, someday be able to read it. And of course, when they capture the Zorge's radio man, they suddenly are. So they, in fact, have the entire... Because what, archive. there's a one-time pad or something? Or, no, no, it's a, it's a code. It's just a code. But they, so why do they break the code? They just, they, they just can't break the code. They can't break the code. Oh, sorry, you're right. It's a one-time... Well, it's not a one-time, but it's, it's a letter code. It's in a right. book. So it's unbreakable unless you've got the... Unless, site, you, unless yeah. you've got the book, which happens to be the, 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 the German Statistical Almanac from 1935 <laughs> was, their, was their letter code book. Uh, but once you know that, then you then you can re decipher all of, all of their... So Zorge uh, spends uh, most of the war in prison. And three years, the Japanese keep him. And Zorge uh, writes a very extensive prison memoir, extolling his own virtues as a, uh, as, as a, as a communist and a, and a soldier of the revolution, because all the time he's expecting the Soviets to come and save his backside. And they don't. They ignore him. In fact, they just, as it turns out from the archives, they basically sort of immediately, instantly forget who he is. And the, the, the guy is just left mouldering in jail and gets, and gets hanged um, on Revolution Day in 1944 along with Ozaki, his, uh, his, uh, his Japanese agent. And on the scaffold, when it, with a rope around his neck, he, he says, the Soviet Communist Party, the International Communist Party, the Red Army. 
his last words because he always imagined himself as a soldier, although in many I mean, although his chosen battlefield was the dance halls and whorehouses of Shanghai and, uh, and Tokyo. But he did die like a soldier. What an extraordinary tale. The book is called... An Impeccable Spy, Richard Zorge, Stalin's Master Agent. It's available at history.com slash books, as are all the other books featured on this podcast. Thank you so much for coming on the pod. That was amazing. A great pleasure, Dan. Oh, that was cool. I feel we have the history upon our shoulders. All this tradition of ours, our school history, our songs, this part of the history of our country, all were gone and finished and liquidated. One child, one teacher, one book, and one pen can change the world. He tells us what is possible, not just in the pages of history books, but in our own lives as well. I have faith in you.